Hello, hello, hello. Hey, hey, hey. Ah, we're one week away. I'm Nomiki Konst. We have one week away until actual election day. Uh, let's take a breath. And whew, I'm stressed, <laughs> as I know you guys are. Uh, but let's look at where things stand right now, one week from the election. First, this is actually very clearly not 2016. I know folks want to say that. I know they keep comparing 2016. And some of that is because we're afraid it will happen again, overcorrecting a little bit. But let's just pay attention. Banish 2016 from your mind. It is different in so many ways this time around. And that's actually a really interesting point because Democrats tend to do this. They look back rather than plan forward. And this is a very different election. First off, Biden is leading Donald J. Trump by nine points in national polling. That's 52% to 43%. On this day, four years ago, Hillary Clinton was le less than six points ahead. She was at 45.7% to 40. She never broke 50% ever. In the final days, Trump closed uh, within three points. That was within the final days of the election. Which brings us to a second big difference from 2016. Even if Trump does mount some sort of comeback in, in the next seven days, which I don't see much of a sign, 67 million people have already voted. Should I say that again? 67 million Americans have already cast their ballot in the 2020 election. To say this another way, nearly half of the electorate, based on the 2016 vote, has already turned out. For those who wondered what democracy would look like in a pandemic, this is a democracy at its finest. We vote because we can. Yes, we can. Which brings us to one of my, my, my one last fear in the final seven days. And there are a lot of fears, okay? Trump and the Republicans have tried everything. Even ramming through the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court last night. Strangely enough, did not get headline news today. But nothing has cut into Biden's support or boosted Trump's in any significant way. None of these actions has boosted his polls, which leaves the Republicans with their very last card. And it is a very big card and one they are very, very, very good at. Of course, that's voter suppression. Their last remaining hope of hanging on to the White House and probably the Senate, too, is to deter people from voting and to keep some of the ballots already cast from being counted. Democrats are dramatically outvoting Republicans in the mail-in voting, from what we know in the states that track party registration. That's why Trump keeps raising phony warnings about mail ballot fraud. Republicans will do all that they can to knock out those ballots. Does the signature match? Was the witness real in states that require a witness? And there is a direct link here to Amy Coney Barrett. In several states, the Republicans are trying to cut off the mail ballots on Election Day. So, for example, if you live in Pennsylvania or North Carolina, the state says your mail ballot will be counted if it is postmarked by Election Day, even if it arrives after. Republicans are asking the Supreme Court to block that and set a hard deadline that all mail ballots must arrive before the polls close. In other words, if the Republicans win this argument at the Supreme Court, the United States Postal Service, battered, bruised, and underfunded, could determine whether the deciding votes in two battleground states get counted. 
deliver them before the polls close, and they count. Deliver them after, and they don't. You think that should be up to the post office? I don't think so. But guess who will get to vote on that question? Amy Coney Barrett. It could be the first case she sits on next week. Trump did tell us he wanted her on the court to rule this election, right? Even before Election Day. So we have an historic wave of democracy about to crash against the Republican breakwater of voter suppression. Which brings me to one other difference from 2016. Voter suppression is really only effective in the election if it's otherwise pretty close. But the Republicans have another problem. Their candidate. In 2016, a lot of angry working people saw Donald Trump as their vehicle to send a message to the elites. He wasn't a person, he was an avatar. Trump worked to build a coalition bigger than that anger. He brought in evangelicals, business people. But there's none of that this time. All he has is his angry base. And they have him, the real Donald Trump, as his Twitter handle says. In 2016, they could at least act like they didn't really know who he was. Laughter four years of his madness, that is not an option. Which is why the people who decided at the last minute to vote for him in 2016 are now defecting. The more you know him, the more disgusted you are. There will be some purple in this blue wave, and, and I'm actually okay with that if we win. Especially if they fight the Republican institutions causing this. Guys, we have a great show today. Uh, we talk about a potential coup in the United States with Joshua Kahn Russell. And then later we talk about the media's coverage of this election with Napoleon DeLegend and Matt Binder. But first, I have to plug an event. Uh, there is an organization I am on the board of called Matriarch, if you don't know about it. We support working class progressive women running for Congress. Well, we have a summit this Friday, uh, Friday night. This summit, we have... Cory Bush and Barbara Smith, and we have other uh, uh, con con Congress members that are going to be joining us, soon to be announced. Very exciting. Uh, we have activists. We have Jane McAlevey, who's going to talk about the path forward for uh, bringing in class and feminism into the argument. Because one thing that's really important right now, as we gear up to Election Day, is we have to we have to talk about class. But when you look at the front lines of who has been affected in this pandemic, it's Women. I mean, they are on the front lines. When you look at nurses and flight attendants and teachers, those are unions that are under attack, that are female-led and majority female made up. And of course, black women have really bared the worst. So we're going to talk about that uh, at the summit. We're going to talk about uh, the, the strategy moving forward after Election Day, between Election Day and uh, Inauguration Day, a potential general strike, and then what to do after uh, after the inauguration of whoever, <laughs> whichever president wins. Uh, hopefully, we will be fighting a, a blue president and not a red president. But this is going to be such an interesting conversation. So definitely join us Friday night, 6 to 9 p.m. Eastern. Uh, I am going to do a little thing there, too, if you, you know, want to hear me speak. But Francesca Fiorentini is going to be on. We have an amazing lineup. Uh, really, it is it is like top tier progressive leaders, and you might even hear from some voices that you've never heard from in the past. And I just I think it's exactly the message that we need to hear going into the election. It's not just a GOTV. It's not just a rallying cry. It's really what our case should be moving forward and how we need to organize. All right, these are these stories that are at the top of my newsfeed. Which side are you on? 
yesterday with the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court, some Senate Democrats, including Chuck Schumer, expressed anger and frustration at the illegitimacy of this process. Schumer stated the following, quote, you may win this vote, but you will never, never get your credibility back. And the next time the American people give Democrats a majority in this chamber, you will have forfeited the right to tell us how to run the majority, end quote. First of all, what credibility did the Senate GOP have before with its background talks to kill the stimulus and its outright opposition to basic social programs? But moreover, why are the Senate Democrats always waiting for a reason to stand up for their so-called principles? Who remembers Nancy Pelosi saying that Democrats would use every arrow in their quiver to stop the confirmation? One thing is clear. The shared credibility between the Democrats and Republicans comes from belonging to the same crooked political establishment. The Department of Homeland Security is ramping up its intimidation methods against immigrants as Election Day draws nearer and as voters of color historically stand to vote against Trump's bigoted administration. For example, on October 21st, DHS revealed a new expedited removal policy to deport those who cannot prove that they have lived in the country for two years and bypass a court hearing process. With billboards in Pennsylvania threatening, quote, criminal aliens and an increase in raids, it is very clear that the DHS is using voter suppression as a tool to continue their reign of terror for Donald Trump. And last, a 60 Minutes interview with Kamala Harris reminds us that the power and profit motive comes before principles in the Democratic Party. When asked by the interviewer, Nora, Nora O'Donnell, if she would advocate for Medicare for All in her vice presidential role, Harris said no. Quote, I would not have joined this ticket if I didn't support what Joe was proposing, she claimed. Despite the fact that she originally co-sponsored the Medicare for All bill in the Senate, you know, before she was running for president and needed progressives, but with a new demand for support among the establishment as the Biden-Harris ticket seeks the nomination, Harris is upholding the status quo, and it's the American people, alongside Medicare for All, that are being abandoned. All right, guys, if you aren't already, make sure to hit that like button, smash it, smash it, smash it, subscribe, and if you hit the little bell, you get an alert when our show is on, which is on Tuesday live, Tuesday through Friday, uh, from 3 p.m. Eastern to 4 p.m. And if you're not already, please join us on Patreon.com. We are putting in a ton of exclusive interviews, like the one I did the other day with Harvey K. We talk about why Bernie Sanders should not be labor secretary. We go through the history, why it wouldn't work, why it would I'm not going to tell you, you got to listen to it. That's, that's just what you got to do. You got to go to patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show for as low as $5 a month. That's one nitro, which is in here. I went and bought one today. I, I use nitro as an example because I buy one every day and it's the only thing that keeps me awake. And, you know, I could probably sacrifice like one a week, maybe like on a Saturday or something, uh, if it meant supporting progressive media, which... I try to do. I try to do it, too. I have pals out there. I know how hard it is, especially the smaller shows and the newer shows. They really, you know, every dollar counts in helping us build our team, helping us buy a new camera. You know, this is the kind of stuff that um, makes independent media work. So definitely go check us out on Patreon.com slash The Nomi Key Show. We will be right back with Joshua Con Russell.
Hello, welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. Our dear friend Joshua Con Russell is here today to talk about. I can't believe we even have to have a conversation. This is this is like what's keeping me up at night. Um, a potential coup in the United States. I think my opening kind of laid out how close it is and what they're doing uh, electorally and through through the DHS even for voter suppression. Uh, but we are going to talk about what happens if. The election does not go our way um, on Election Day and beyond. Josh McCon Russell is now an organizer with Choose Democracy. He is an expert in nonviolent organizing and strategy and just a dear pal. Joshua, thanks for joining us. So glad to be here. You I miss set up. Um, Look at this. I love it. Yeah. There, yeah, I'm, I'm you know, getting a little bit more profesh. Um, <laughs> I, I missed some of your intro, but it was super compelling. And it sounds like you're hopeful. I mean, you can only hope, but I think the the point is is that we have to be really thoughtful about this. It could come down to a Supreme Court decision based on some mail-in voting laws in Pennsylvania and North Carolina, as I said in the opening, or, you know, the fact that they're trying to block immigrants from voting um, through intimidation through an actual arm of, of the government, which is... They're not even supposed to get mixed up in, in in politics. So there's just a lot of they're breaking all of the rules. And I'm I'm hoping that Democrats, you know, are are manned with enough lawyers to fight this off. Um, which you know, traditionally, I think since 2000, they've done a good job of. I used to work in voter protection uh, with the DNC on election night, and it was always very revealing to see uh, what what they were doing across the country. But man, all right. So tell us, mm-hmm. it, it, are we going to have a coup? Well. I'm hopeful too, um, and the, you know, and our position is that with all of the different indications we have of the variety of ways that the Trump administration is currently planning to try to steal the election, uh, it would be foolish to not prepare for it. And as we learned from 2000, when uh, there was, you know, we call that a coup as well. What happened in 2000 in this country? And we think if we called that a coup, we might have been able to actually organize and not just rely on the Democratic Party to negotiate and then eventually capitulate. Um, Right. So where do you want to start? Do you want to start with our assessment of why we call it a coup? Yeah, yeah. let's let's just set the foundation. What is a coup? Mm-hmm. So the, we're using the word coup for a couple of reasons. What, we're not trying to be hyperbolic. We're not trying to reference tanks in the streets or anything like that. We're trying to actually be precise and say there's a canon of strategy uh, that we can learn from, from coups in other countries, that uh, we are approaching a moment where we need to employ those strategies. So, uh, and I'll, I'll get more to that in a second, but we call it a coup if, number one, Trump tries to claim victory before all the votes are counted. Right. Uh, or number two, if uh, he tries to stop the counting of votes, uh, which you described one of the scenarios of that, I think, in the intro, um, or if he refuses to accept the loss in some way. And so there's a lot of different kinds of ways that the Trump administration is already discrediting the election through mail-in ballots. There are a number of different threats that um, you know basically are tantamount to whether that's Attorney General William Barr, um, seizing ballots, or um, or I'll give an example that actually makes me more hopeful. The Pennsylvania House Republicans um, recently tried to create something called an election integrity plan, and uh, which would have proposed an open-ended, subpoena-wielding uh, commission with the authority to seize uncounted ballots. And a few days after that went public, 
uh, a number of, you know, quote unquote, moderate Republicans backed off and the whole thing tanked, which is a good sign. Um, and uh, an example of what we mean when we talk about coup strategy, because we need to uh, shift out of, you know, activist mode. So I've, I've been a social movement organizer my whole life. And uh, the way that we often think is that you, you have a longstanding grievance and you build a social movement campaign where you pick a target, you vilify the target, you build a base, and then you leverage your pressure uh, through a variety of different kinds of pressure and protest tactics. Um, that's not the terrain that we're in. If we all go out into the streets and target and try to vilify Trump, we're really missing the game. And in fact, that's right. uh, in that kind of moment, we're just playing into an existing narrative of polarization. Trump will have his base out in the streets. It won't amount to anything. Instead, we can learn from coups. And so the project that I'm involved with, uh, which is called Choose Democracy, our website is choosedemocracy.us, is rooted in evidence of how coups were defeated. Around the world, almost half of all coups failed, uh, attempted coups since the 1950s for a variety of reasons. But a lot of them were defeated by people power. And uh, one of the things that we learn from that, and we go, you know, if you come to our trainings, we go through case studies in a number of different countries in places like Argentina in 1987 or Thailand in 1992 or Germany in 1920. Um, it's the logic of noncompliance. So number one, it's about standing up for democracy as a whole. So it's not about Trump anymore, right? So whether or not they try to throw away ballots or whether it is through voter intimidations of the army for Trump that he's organizing at the polls, um, what we are doing is standing up in a broad, actually nonpartisan way to uh, defend the integrity of the election process, number one. And number two, we do that through a variety of strategies that are called non-compliance, which is basically refusing to go along with the coup plotters. So mm -hmm. what our organization, we, we formed in, uh, in August, uh, we are made up of a variety of experienced nonviolent direct action trainers and social movement organizers from a variety of social movements one of our lead trainers, for example, was the coordinator of Mississippi Freedom Summer in 1964 and comes out of the civil rights movement. We're intergenerational, we're multiracial, we come out of labor movements, we come out of the climate justice movement, we come out of uh, other movements as well. And our goal was really to, number one, psychologically prepare people to get out of this American exceptionalism, to say, That's yes, right. this can happen here. Not only can it happen here, it's already happened it here. Has. <laughs> and it, exactly. It has. But, you know, the media never portrayed it that way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that to, to say that the worst thing we can do is freeze, that that actually um, mm -hmm. we have a lot of options here. We don't need to just be scared of, of the word coup. Instead, we can root ourselves in history and lean into a variety of the tools that we have and understand that it's a fluid situation where what we're what we're about to embark on probably um, in the case of a contested election in any kind of way, is a contest for legitimacy. And when you're in a contest for legitimacy, there are a variety. Can you explain that and, a little bit more? I mean, it, it's, mm -hmm. what is a contest for legitimacy? When, when you say legitimacy. Yeah. So let me take a step back and say, you know, I'm not, I don't personally think it's likely that Trump would lose the election Everyone thinks he lost the election and he says, I'm not going anyway. <laughs> okay. And tries to, you know, get the, like, the military. Out of the, the White House. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. That's that's not a scenario that we're really imagining. What we're imagining is 
His side says he won the election. The Democrats say they won the election. And then a number of the institutions, the legitimizing institutions in our society, need to decide who won, right? Mm -hmm. So in 2000, as an example, they were recounting ballots in Florida. And in the process of that, the the GOP, the, uh, I guess we could go into this. There was something called the Brooks Brothers riot, right. where there were um, GOP operatives in suits and ties who protested the counting of ballots. That was their outside strategy. They had an inside strategy of going to the courts, stopped the counting of ballots, right? And then punted it to the Supreme Court to make a decision. The Supreme Court gave the election to George W. Bush, even though later when they were recounted, it looked like Al Gore actually even won by the electoral college standards. Yeah. So that was a moment where there was a contest for legitimacy. It went to the Supreme Court to decide and arbitrate who, who is the rightful heir to the throne. And so Trump has been building a legal operation all year to try to punt this into the courts in a variety of different ways to accuse you know every key state of malfeasance, et cetera. There are other there are other scenarios that we're planning for, such as um, in a number of states where there are Republican-controlled state legislatures, where uh, they might offer a different slate of electors, where they will say, "Yeah, it looks like our our state voted against Trump, but we think those are fake because of mail-in ballots." Blah blah blah. We're going to send in a different slate of electors and the governor, and then it goes through a pretty constitutionally vague, convoluted process. So, so when you say a different slate of electors, I mean, how are they allowed to do that? It's, you mean, they're still Republican. They're still, I thought they were supposed to vote according to the population. Yeah, they're the not bound in that way. And there's a distinction. It's different in different states. Okay. But uh, in general, they could like to, to, to give a little bit more historical context, um, just because I see Harvey K in the chat. <laughs> oh, uh, you're watching the chat? <laughs> the, well, not right now when I was watching your intro, though. Uh, is, um, you know, the, the closest analogy to this was the election in, in 1876, when the country was super polarized, even more so than it was now. States offered competing slates of electors, and it was a mess up until the inauguration, and it was only resolved through a grand bargain, basically. And the consequence of that bargain we still live with today, it basically ushered in the end of Reconstruction, uh, and it ushered in the Jim Crow era, right. which we still live with the vestiges right now. And so part of the case that we're making is the impulse of politicians is to cut deals and bargain and negotiate. Mm -hmm. And the role of citizens is to draw a line and say that our democracy is not, in fact, negotiable. Uh, and that's one of the things we've learned from coups in other places, like in Argentina, uh, when the military tried to stage a coup, their civilian um, uh I guess he was a president. Yeah, uh, their civilian president um, immediately tried to negotiate, tried to compromise. People came into the streets, occupied, went on strike, shut the country down, and in doing so, stiffened the spines of political leaders to not negotiate either. And so the strategies which, that which we're is kind building, of what we saw yeah. with Chuck Schumer this week. I mean, just to put it into mm -hmm. today's context. Granted, too little, too late, but it's, his spine seems to have stiffened a little bit because of this moment. Yeah. And that's and really what we're trying to do is, you know, we're in the business of coup prevention. So things things that would help us avoid avoid Trump stealing the election are, first of all, you know, if Trump loses by a large enough margin, uh, it means that all of the various ways they try to steal it may not add up to enough. Right. right. And that would be exactly. an ideal scenario. Um, but 
if if we're not in that case, then the more preparation we can do now makes them makes their ability to steal an election less and less likely. So whether, so for example, one of the things that people are doing right now, uh, there's a group called Protect Our Election that has a letter writing campaign to election officials to stiffen their backbones uh, to say so that they know if they have to refuse an illegal order, uh, they actually have support. Right. Um, oh, part of what we're doing. What, what do you mean by that? Like they that they have support like they're not ele- they're not elected no yeah so what i mean is that uh there is a popular narrative and popular support for people to disobey orders of the would-be coup plotters so whether that and so in this case we're talking about election officials in the context of potentially tossing ballots invalidating ballots for you know dubious reasons things like that okay. um another thing that we're doing well actually let me also say that so on our website, choosedemocracy.us, we have a pledge uh, for people to sign. And the pledge is basically an organizing tool. And there's four parts to the pledge. The first is that we're going to vote. We'll participate in the process. The second uh, is that we are going to refuse to accept an election result uh, if a winner is declared without all the votes being counted. Uh, the third is that we're going to nonviolently take to the streets uh, if a coup is attempted, defined in the way that I said described earlier. And then the fourth is that we're willing to shut down the country if necessary in order to protect the integrity of the democratic process. And that's where- When you where, say shut down, is that like a strike? A, a, yeah. So what we're talking about uh, is, so for example, the Rochester AFL-CIO, which represents 70,000 workers, just committed to uh, go on strike if there's election tampering, and that they're also calling on the other affiliated unions with the AFL-CIO to do the same. And they're using the word general strike, which, you know, only 10% of the labor force in the U.S. is organized. And so we're using the word rolling strikes, right? We don't actually need a general strike in order to shut down this country. If, if what it might look like is walkouts, wildcat strikes, sit downs, things like that. And there's a number of different industries that are already talking about this. The National Union of Healthcare Workers Executive Board just endorsed a pledge um, uh, like this. Uh, for example, uh, another example is the Detroit postal workers are printing up the pledge with their official union letterhead on it, the Choose Democracy pledge. Wouldn't that hurt? I mean, listen, like I, I am a hundred percent for a general strike, but healthcare workers walking out during a pandemic, postal workers, you know, who granted this will probably be after the election, who we rely on to distribute the ballot. Mm-hmm. Doesn't that go against our our goals here? I mean, what if it was just like yeah. Amazon workers? I mean, granted that it's not unions, but what if what if there was it was more targeted towards industries that are not going to disrupt the well-being and our democracy specifically? Yeah, yeah, totally. Well, I don't I don't I can't speak for the National Union of Healthcare Workers. I don't know what their strike looks like. I don't know what their actions look like. Um, I do not think that they're threatening like, oh, there's not going to be health care for people or where our nurses are going. That's not what we're talking about. Okay. Um, but the the postal workers, for example, I mean, what we are, this is well after the election. So this is the, the stage that we're talking about is hopefully it never gets to this stage. Sure. Uh, but if it does, it, it, this is the last stage of the process. And that would look like shutting down the, the country, right? And so that's when coups are defeated, that it what we're demonstrating to power holders is that the country will not move forward uh, until the democratic process is protected. And that's the leverage that we have for it. You know, so when we imagine things getting punted into the courts, 
the courts are not apolitical. And if the country is being shut down, it's a very different calculus for them, right? And so even in 2000, their calculus was they could make any decision and they knew that the two political parties would accept it and people would go along with it. And so what we're trying to do is both change that calculus and also part of the strategy um, of where we're applying pressure is we call it a pillar strategy. So if you understand a government or a regime as like, Here's a way of, t- so it's like, imagine there's, this is a, tri- I'm making a triangle. This is the roof of a house. <laughs> and that roof is held up by a number of pillars. Those are different sectors of society. So it's held up by capital. It's held up by labor. It's held up by the media. It's held up by politicians. It's held, there are a number of different pillars. Some of those pillars, we don't have any control over. Mm-hmm. But many of those pillars, we do. And if we can yank the pillars of support out, the whole edifice collapses. And so part of the strategy is to get different pillars in society to pull their pull their support out from under the would-be coup plotters, right? And right. so that does mean, you know, so when I said earlier, a contest for legitimacy, that means trying to move an uncertain center off the fence. So as, as an activist, I'm have spent the last 20 years constantly frustrated by the way that the Democrats constantly tack towards some mythologized center instead of understanding the power of their progressive base, blah, blah, blah. This is a situation where we have to defend the ground we stand on, and we actually are going for the center. We are trying to create the biggest tent possible. We are trying to peel off defectors. We are trying to, for you know, so another example of something that uh, is an option is consumer strikes, right? To convince capital that this is bad for business. Um, and so there are, there's a number of things that are being planned. There's a number of grassroots organizations all throughout the country who are currently planning. So for example, especially in swing states. So in Florida, there is a, a racial justice organization called the Dream Defenders. They're working mm-hmm. with Sunrise and yeah. several other groups in a coalition to do um, several things. They're both everyone's doing training so we're training we're training now across all of these organizations and many groups have other pledges that are similar to our pledge that it's it's an organizing tool to get people to for example pressure politicians to sign the pledge so right. that they have something that they can be held to account for we're doing trainings around de-escalation so that we can anticipate potential violence from proud boys or militias or whoever that was my next um and uh and basically do you know protection at the polls and then have people organized to be able to respond to a fluid context. So Dream Defenders and Sunrise all throughout Florida are organizing young people to both go on a youth strike if it escalates to that, but there's many steps along the way before it gets to that point. But what we're trying to do is, is start to seed the ground for a strategy so that if it does get to that point, we are ready. Because the good thing, there's a lot of things actually in our favor um, that you know most coups are planned in secret. They are not tweeted out months in advance by a president refusing, saying that he's gonna refuse to concede. So we actually have comparatively a, a large amount of time. Like in, in many other, like in France in 1961, they defeated a, a would-be coup in four days. Now they were able to do it because they had a really strong union movements and so labor was able to click into action because the infrastructure was there right and we don't have a lot of that infrastructure so what we're doing now is moving through various social movement formations um, and, and other groups to build that infrastructure so that we can be responsive and part and all of this we're hoping is preventative that the more that we can flex that muscle demonstrate or organize show show various elected officials yeah it it, it already shifts the balance of forces in the calculation. But what if, what if in the next few days, 
Donald Trump decides that there's some sort of imminent threat, uh, and he sends out the National Guard to whatever polling sites. I mean, it's up to him to declare this. That that's obviously in states, specific governors to be in compliance with that. So, in terms of actual violence at the polls after election day, I mean, there is a very feasible scenario where he could exercise whatever muscle he has in order to maintain power. And Republicans, even if they're on the center, are going to let him do it because it means they, they maintain power. You don't, I mean, what is, what is, what is there to be done other than showing up on the streets? I mean, how, how do we fight that? Mm-hmm. Well, so that's one of the reasons that, again, there's a, there's a debate on the left about the role of violence and property destruction. In normal social movement times, that's an interesting debate. In, in this context, we, we look at the canon of nonviolent civil resistance because that's mm-hmm. what's worked. And one of the reasons is that it helps, uh, if you're in a contest for legitimacy, drawing as big of a distinction as possible between uh, our side and their side that may use violence or attempt to use violence is is important. Also, building a nonviolent framework is a way to bring as many people as possible out into the streets. And so the, there's a lot of what ifs, you know, and we are we are trying to think about as many contingencies as possible, but at the end of the day, when people sign up on these different pledges, you know, there's a group called Hold the Line that also has a pledge, and they have a whole organizing guide that is, is linked on our site as well. And it, when people sign up and go through these trainings that we're offering, there's also an action hub so that we can pivot and respond to what is a chaotic, fluid moment. So we're not making static plans. What we're trying to do is prepare the ground to be able to respond to a variety of circumstances that honestly might look really different in different states. And so there's and so there's some groups like there's a group called Shutdown DC that's going to use direct action to shut down DC, uh, which is so what, important. What does that mean, shutdown DC? Like. The I don't know the specifics of their plans. I would I would recommend checking out their websites. You can just Google shut down DC, but they've been doing they've been really leaning into um, you know, so nonviolent direct action tactics include things like um, you know, sit downs, human blockades, things like that, stopping the city from moving, blocking highways, things like that. Uh, and it's th- those are th- there's two sort of forms of civil resistance. One is called non-compliance, where you withdraw your participation from the system. So that's what we talked about earlier: walkouts, strikes, refusing orders, right. non-participation, boycotts, consumer strikes, stuff like that. The other is like intervention. So that's things like you're jamming up the gears of a system so that it it can't function anymore. So those are things like. Uh, blockades, those are things like mass action. And so we we still do support mass demonstrations, um, even though I think mass demonstrations are are tend to be an overused tactic. It depends what the the goal is and what the message is. And so there are other groups, like there's a huge coalition uh, called Protect the Results that is um, about 100 plus groups. They're like a center left coalition. They're already organizing rallies uh, to protect the results on November 4th all around the country. And that will set the tone um, for you know this this narrative being about democracy rather than being about a partisan bickering kind of street fight or something like that. Um, Which, um, but I mean, even if you shut down the streets, that that's exactly feed. I mean, I think we're going to expect people to show up on the streets no matter what. And it's yeah. great that it's being organized by folks that really can direct the energy in the right place that protects as many people as possible. But we are dealing with a madman who has shown and indicated in the last few months just how violent he 
and, and police, how violent they can be in response to nonviolent direct actions. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I know you're hopeful, but um, let's say next week, um, we definitely won't know the results. How do you see next week playing out? Well, the, so the on our website, we have an article that has seven tactics that are kind of sequenced in order of right. things that we anticipate. So what's happening right now is preparing, getting, and, and there's a lot of groups that are pressuring election officials and pressuring or elected officials and election officials to sign the pledge, mm-hmm. for example, um, and to basically what I was talking about earlier with those letter writing campaigns. The next is supporting people to learn how to how to do actions together, how you can build a team. And so a lot of what our trainings are about is also drawing from, we have a rich, none of this stuff is new in the United States. So for example, a lot of our facilitators in our trainings that are doing action planning about how you can mitigate risks from everything from COVID to violence from counter protesters, whatever, came out of a civil rights struggle where they were dealing with the violence of uh, Klansmen, they were, and and police that were, you know, would put on the hood, uh, you know, after sun went down. And we, we have a long legacy in this country of ways that social movements can maneuver when the National Guard is called out, when there are, you know, when there is a violent street movement um, that is, you know, representing a, an attempt at fascism. And so we root our trainings in the lessons of those histories, which is why we encourage people to sign up and get, get a full training there. Um, but then the next step is, so there's, um, so the hold the line guide also I would recommend is it really does map out a, a pretty wide variety of scenarios. But after November 4th, there are all of these rallies. And then after that, there's, you know, so there's potential actions at the board of elections that can happen. And, and so th- those are things like, protecting the board of elections from another Brooks Brothers riot or whatever the equivalent is, right? And so that doesn't look like angry protesters. There are groups that are planning on hanging out at the board, you know, at the board of elections during, you know, if there are recounts, for example, and bringing balloons and pizza and kids and trying to make it an accessible, engaged environment so that those that so that those workers actually can do their jobs properly and not be intimidated away from being able to do it. So we're trying to create a safe environment as to the degree that we uh, are able to control that. And there's lots of things out of our control. And also, uh, you know, like you mentioned earlier, it'll it'll be chaotic on all sides. There's going to be a lot of people in the streets doing a lot of things. We, as an organization, are not trying to steer all of the resistance to this moment. We, I mean, we wouldn't, we d- wouldn't want to, and we don't even have capacity to do that. We're a, a grassroots operation of all of us trying to do this in our spare time. Uh, and so um, the, but what we are trying to do is offer a framework for people who want to opt into it, where once you sign the pledge, not only can you get trained, but there's an action hub for actions that are in accordance with these principles. Right. And if other activists are doing other things, good on them we're not trying to we're not trying to police anybody else in terms of what they are doing but then it it would cross so so we have those three red lines of you know claiming victory before the votes are counted trying to stop the the counting of ballots and then and and then refusing to accept the loss by punting it to the courts or whatever and at each of those there's different red line moments that would signal a potential escalation and so excuse me even though we've we're you know preparing the ground and there's a lot of unions, for example, who are now in conversation uh, about 
uh, strikes. There was uh, this last week the Emergency Workplace Organizing Committee, for example, which is a collaboration between the electrical workers and DSA, um, had a roundtable about this with various labor leaders, including Sarah Nelson from the Flight Attendants Union, which, if you remember, the Flight Attendants Union threatening to shut down air travel yes. um, was... Yeah. Oh, great. So, I mean, there's real power here. It doesn't need to all add up to a giant general strike. It actually can be um, a few different key sectors and key people moving. Um, and our our goal is to kind of track this stuff and see at what point different kinds of escalations are necessary. And hopefully they won't be necessary. Uh, but given the lessons from 2000, it would be foolish to not prepare. And in the process of preparing, we think it can help revitalize our democracy. That's, anyway. that's the other side of it, right? There's a yeah. really great moment here. It, you know, the, the worst thing that could happen is, is everybody goes to brunch afterwards. Um, Joshua, super interesting. Um, uh, what's the website again? We're going to put it in the information. ChooseDemocracy.us. And, and the last thing I'll say is, if, if we do fight for our democracy and win, um, the the level of organizing that we can come out of the gate swinging with next year is going to be so energized. And it makes me really hopeful for actually winning gains and not just defending the ground we stand on. Exactly. Take this yeah. organization, this structure, including those who might be moving away from capital, uh, even in the centrist world, and mobilize it around things like a... a, a a Strengthened Heroes Act, uh, and many, many other things like Medicare for All. Joshua, love you. Gotta run. We're, we're heading on. off to our next one. Um, check it out. Super interesting stuff here. And even imagine, like, uh, <laughs> what I, I think would be interesting is to see business leaders, like CEOs, say, you know what? We are going to shut down our business, pay our workers, but we are going to shut down because we are going to take part from a leadership perspective and join in solidarity with workers and Americans in choosing democracy. So I can see this growing into something much bigger that we never imagined. Um, all right, guys, we will be right back. We have a great panel with Matt Binder and Napoleon DeLegend talking about how the media is handling this election, especially in the last week. Jeez. Stick around. We'll be right back. Hey guys, we are back. Before we go into the, the break, I just want to give a special shout out to the Majority Report crew for coming over. Uh, it's been, these Tuesdays are a lot of fun. I'm on the Majority Report and then we come over uh, to the Nomi Key Show. So thanks guys for those of you who are new. Uh, yeah, for coming over, um, make sure to subscribe while you have a chance. Smash that like button. Hit that alert. We are on every day from Tuesday to Friday, 3 p.m. to 4 o'clock. And please join us on patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. I'm going to do one more plug while I have you all here, we have a summit this week uh, on Friday for Matriarch, which supports working class progressive women running for Congress. But the summit is about class and feminism and really uh, what the game plan is from now uh, moving from all the, just as, as Joshua just said, everything involving a general strike. Um, talking about how the pandemic has hit women, working class women um, and poor women the most and why we need to center that around our conversation um, in terms of the policies that we need to push. And Cori Bush is going to be headlining. We have Jane McAlevey, who is one of the best organizers in, in the world, I think. Uh, she has been organizing strategy with Sarah Nelson. Uh, in regards to the general strike, they had a general strike school recently, a global one. She's going to be on to talk. Uh, Barbara Smith, who coined the term intersectionality. Uh, she is a Nobel Prize nominee. 
Uh, so those are just a few of the folks who are going to be, the women that are going to be at our summit. Go get your tickets right now. $27 that we start at. Go check it out. All right. Hey, guys. Matt Binder, Napoleon to Legend. Thanks for joining. So much to talk about today. Um, I hope you, I don't know if you, can you guys stick around a little long? Yeah, cool let's, let's do it. Let's do All it. All right. Let's do it. Let's do it. All right, Napoleon is a hip-hop artist. He's a regular here, an amazing activist. And, of course, Matt Bender is a journalist and reporter. Uh, he, you see him on the Majority Report on Fridays, is it? Is that what day? Thursday? Uh, Thursdays. 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 My days, yes. Um, all right, I want to start off with this Kamala Harris interview. Can we play that clip of Kamala being interviewed? Uh, I should say Senator Harris uh, being interviewed this weekend. You're very different in the policies that you've supported in the past. You're considered the most liberal United States senator. I, I Somebody said that, and it actually was Mike Pence on the debate stage. But. Yeah. Well, actually, the nonpartisan GovTrack has rated you as the most liberal senator. You supported the Green New Deal. You supported Medicare for all. You've supported legalizing marijuana. Joe Biden doesn't support those things. So are you going to bring the policies those progressive policies that you supported as senator into a Biden administration? What I will do, and I promise you this, and this is what Joe wants me to do, this was part of our deal. I will always share with him my lived experience as it relates to any issue that we confront. And I promised Joe that I will give him that perspective and always be honest with him. And is that a socialist or progressive perspective? <laughs> no. <laughs> No, it is the perspective of, of a woman who grew up a, a, a black child in America, who was also a prosecutor, who also has a mother who arrived here at the age of 19 from India, who also, you know, likes hip hop. <laughs> like, what do you want to know? Okay, I want to give you I want to give you the opportunity. To... All right. Let's start with hip hop. <laughs> Napoleon, like. Is that like, like do, do people who like hip hop not support progressive policies or something? Or what is there? I'm saying that's, that's ridiculous. That's like another type of pandering. I, I, it feels like she she's seeking to get points from saying that. You know what I'm saying? Like, we already know you're black. We know you're more hip than the typical, you know, older politicians that you're you're running with. But uh, I just find it so ridiculous that she keeps using that as a as a way to make herself more likable, you know? Okay, from the media perspective, I, I, you know, we we know who Senator Harris is, and like, what's really strange to me is she is, and it shows you the strength of the establishment and sort of this generation of Democrats. She seems so uncomfortable answering questions that she should be really comfortable at this point answering. But also, Nora O'Donnell, what are you doing asking that question? That's like a Republican, you know, talking point handed to you, and you just. Matt, is this? <laughs> I mean, the 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 idea that you would ask too, socialist or progressive, as if they're the same. Like that was how it was asked. It was, okay. Like she wasn't asking, "Are you a socialist or progressive?" She just basically gave both words as if they were the same, and Kamala, you know, laughed it off. I mean, I had the same reaction when I heard that question being asked. You know, laughing like that, but uh, for very different reasons. You know, the the thing is though is that the the way that they they look at you know, uh, these different organizations and groups look at who is the most progressive or the most liberal senator. It's very skewed. Well, first of all, it's very easy to be one of the more liberal senators because unlike the House, the Senate is very old, white, and conservative. So you're already, you know, you already have a, a leg up and you're already way more 
progressive than anyone else if just by voting uh, alongside some other uh, progressive Democrats. But then also, they also decide, I'm not sure about this one specifically, but I've seen other uh, groups that, that rank uh, Kamala high on the most progressive. And a lot of those organizations, they do things like their, their, their methodology is basically, if you voted in a way where something like 90% of Democrats voted, then you are considered a progressive, that, that, like one point in the progressive column for you, if you are a, you know, for the most liberal or progressive senator. But that's just not how these things work. I mean, a lot of times most Democrats are for something that's more conservative centrist. And then people like Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or Ed Markey or uh, Jeff Merkley, they stand up and they vote against what most Democrats vote against, uh, vote for. And that would make them more progressive, but not to these groups. That's right. It's interesting. It's, it's almost the same thing I, I have an issue with with polling is um, – Polling is skewed around social issues and, and, and in terms of, you know, whether a district. OK, so they have this Cook report, right, that establishes how um, Democratic or Republican leading a district is. And it's it's based on a set of principles that's really kind of socially geared, not economics, which is why Democrats think that they don't have a chance in in running a Democrat uh, in a very far right district. But if that Democrat were running on, of course, policies like Medicare for all and uh, homes guarantee and issues that really affect everybody, they would do much better. But because it's, the whole system is designed off of social policies like, you know, gun reform and and are you for gay marriage? And I mean, we know the list of issues. Um, but I also just think like it's the media's fault. Like that was, I've been watching Nora O'Donnell's, I'm sure as you guys have, for years. I've never seen that type of question asked, especially the week before an election, in which it seems like, you know, maybe she would have gotten the message that, that this ticket very well, like, like they can't, they don't deserve this type of criticism at this point in the election. Even the media is on board with that. Um, all right. I actually can't tell if they really think that Kamala, Kamala is like a is like Bernie Sanders light or something like that. I'm really trying to understand where they come because that's not the first time she's been asked something like that. She's been yeah. constantly pushed as the person who's going to like take over for Joe when they put him out to pasture a week after she gets inaugurated and then she's going to bring in some big socialist agenda. Where are they getting this? I would love to know. I mean, I, I wish. I, I wish. I mean, but maybe she's it's not. because she's younger and she's going to have to respond to us. That's that's my only theory here. Um, so there is another piece of media frustration. Uh, this this was published. We covered this in the Majority Report today. This was published in Axios, which is a let's just keep in mind Axios. A, the guy who ran Politico uh, was like, "Oh, Politico is not not, not pro business enough. I'm going to start my own company called Axios." So Axios published this article about a scoop. Uh, the Lincoln Project, the great guys at the Lincoln Project, are becoming a media business, an empire overnight. Uh, can we show that article real quick, Dorsey? We have it handy. Oh. Just kidding. I don't know what's going on. Uh, I think we have a glitch. Dorsey here. dropping the ball. What's going no, on, Dorsey? he's on it all the time. <laughs> he, it's my fault. I dropped this in last minute. Um, but anyways, the Lincoln Project, I mean, we, we know this was founded by Republicans, the Never Trumpers, and they've made it a brand. There we go. Thanks, Dorsey. Uh, they, are, they have paired up with UTA, which is a talent agency, and they have, they're building a podcast. There's going to be book publishing, a television series. 
a propaganda? I mean, what are they trying to propagandize? That's what I want to know. The whole media is neoliberal. Why do we need more? They're producing a song. <laughs> that song came out today, actually. Demi's, uh, Demi Lovato's new, new song. Oh my so, God. Uh, what, Napoleon. The Lincoln Project? Yeah. Oh that's what you need, God. Napoleon. Can you write a song called Commander in Chief that's for Progressive? Oh man, like yeah, I, I I probably should, man. But now nah, it's 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 um we don't like like you said like why do we need more of neoliberalism slash corporatism slash whatever leading right wing in in this space? There's it's already that's the whole space is occupied by that ideology already. You know what I'm saying? And it's like it's so hard for yeah the money's there exactly, and it's like it's so hard for like media's like like this show and other shows to cut into that space because it's like. It's almost like I feel like we cover reality and these left wing shows, we cover like reality. We talk to real people. Like last week, you had somebody from DACA. You talked to somebody like Chris Smalls. Like when you watch these shows, it's almost like watching a game show. It has, it has nothing to do with like re reality. I think it's, so, it's a real war between like ideologies and narratives that's being pushed out there. But at the same time, and Matt, you cover this all the time. You have the right wing being given every single algorithmic and financial benefit and shows like ours and, and others really having to to try to break through whatever crevice they can just to get eyes you know and not in ad dollars too of course because if you're on on youtube so it's it really does seem like capital uh right now and 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 is doing all it can to to clear out any sort of alternate opinions um, it's not going to ever be possible. Right. They've never been able to do this. I mean, people used to pamphlet and they'd still start revolutions. So, you know, that's what we're going to have to move to, I guess, is writing I mean, invisible the, ink pamphlets. <laughs> the, the right has always been really good at the right wing grift. We now know just how good they are. They've basically taken the right wing grift blueprints and they've basically made a right wing grift for liberals. It's amazing. Usually it's funded by, you know, the right, you know, cons the conservative base, whether it's a religious sort of group funding, getting funding from evangelicals or, you know, a far right group getting funding from, you know, white supremacists or, you know, a, a libertarian organization based saying, oh, no, it's really for states rights. But in this scenario, we have a right wing group basically getting all their funding from from liberals. And it's it's yeah. stunning. I mean, especially if you're someone who's been doing this, working in, in left-wing media, even, even if you're not super far left, just someone basically working in like, you know, liberal media or progressive media, and you've been, you know, trudging at this for, for like a decade, during, you know, since the Bush administration, even that's even longer than a decade. And these guys come along basically saying, Trump, we've been awakened by Trump, everything, you know, we've created the monster, but we now suddenly woke up yeah. to it and we want, we need your money. And then seeing them get these millions of dollars, it's its extremely frustrating, to be honest. And, and know, I say this as someone who is, who's quite frustrated by it. Yeah, I mean, like, if they came out and said, I would love for one of their Lincoln Project ads to be like, listen, we, Trump awakened us and now we regret the Iraq war and murdering millions of people and literally writing those policies in the Bush administration. Like, I, if, maybe I would take them a little bit more seriously if they actually explained why they hate Trump other than he's a meanie and he's crazy and, and he's it. embarrassing me. 
That's it. I mean, I've actually been shocked that they've been able to hold their tongue for some of these other issues that they usually support, like with the Supreme Court. I was shocked they came out and said they weren't for uh, Amy Coney Barrett when, you know, you know they are. I feel like they're just saying they're not to maintain their grift. I mean, That's you right. know they're happy well, about it. Demi Lovato was like, I'm not doing your video if you <laughs> come out in favor. Right. right. Napoleon, what were you going to say? No, I, I was I was gonna say that they're monetizing the fact that they're well branded right now. Like you know, mm-hmm. I I didn't know about the Lincoln Project like probably last early last summer. I didn't know who they were until I started hearing everybody talking about it. So it's just it's just another you know capitalism opportunism. Where let's make some money now that people know our name. Let's create a whole network around this. You know, it's it's just mm-hmm. there's no substance behind it. It's just it's to me it's just a money grab. That's right. And they're and, and they're Napoleon, and you got to. You got to pitch him, Napoleon, and make some of that money and bring it over to the left. <laughs> you got to do some sort of cool. Infiltrate. <laughs> some sort of cool and try to see what happens, man. You know, they probably don't even understand rap like that. It could send me some money and I'll make a progressive song that says for the liquor project. <laughs> <laughs> you should do one for um, Kamala Harris. And maybe, because she listens to so much hip hop, maybe you can get her back in favor of Medicare for All through your music. Well, you know what, though? Biden, they, they they got two like real like legit prominent battle rappers. I, I think they're both from from one from Harlem, one from Queens to do a battle rap to for for Biden, but it, it just came out like very yeah. very corny, like extremely <laughs> corny. But they got the right people, so so Biden's whoever was working there knew the right guys to get, but it just didn't come across. Like I don't think I don't think uh, people in that scene really looked at that like oh that was dope, you know that was nice, you know. See, I missed it. It's a thin line, you know, when you do things <laughs> like that, you know, with your credibility and your artist, you know, your artistic, like, you know, it, it's a thin line to, to play. But if you could use your artistry to lobby them, I mean, since they're listening, like Kamala, listen, listen to Napoleon, listen to what he's saying to you. And maybe that's how we'll get into her mind. Kamala, call me, call me. I'm, I'm <laughs> going to talk to her. It's like when you force, you know, I don't have kids, but like when kids are um, learning their ABCs by music, same thing, becoming a or progressive ha- by that. Or the Hamilton dude going uh, Tim Kaine in the membrane. Just do that. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. Okay. Before we wrap up, um, I do want to talk about the, how leftist influencers and even Jacobin are being deplatformed or being censored. And I say censorship because I know. Uh, when I criticize Joe Rogan, people think I'm talking about censoring Joe Rogan, who has the largest podcast on the planet and made how much, Matt? How much money did he get his first podcast on Spotify? $100 million. $100 million. I'm not censoring Joe Rogan. I'm saying stop giving platforms to Nazis. That's my, he has a choice, an editorial decision to make to have thoughtful people on. But when you give the person full, like a full audience that's giving them a platform. Okay, so um, <laughs> just had to make sure. So Jacobin, they tried to post an article on uh, Marxism and another, uh, Esha, uh, who's a dear friend, she, Esha Legal is her, her handle on Twitter. Uh, she Her Twitter account was shut down because she talked about the death of McCarthy and like how the neoliberals are trying to revive McCarthy. And it was like, He's been dead for 50 years, 60. I don't even know how long. And they censored her account. They shut it down because of that post. So there's this trend happening right now, a week before the election, two weeks before the election, in which key accounts that are influencers 
um, especially on the left uh, and maybe beyond, are are being silenced um, or deplatformed even. And you know, I'm sure the excuse they're going to make is we're, we're being very careful that there's no voter you know suppression tactics out there. But yet Ben Shapiro still has an account on Twitter and is the most popular account on Facebook. So Matt, I mean, like, how do we fight this? I mean, here's the thing. I know a lot of people on the left think that this is something that like, oh, you know, it was inevitable. You know, you deplatform, you 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 want these uh, plat- uh, these social media platforms to deplatform the right and it's bound to come back the other way. But I don't know. I mean, I personally don't like major corporations deciding these things. Uh, but it is the situation we find ourselves in. I mean, uh, do do I go out of my way to to petition for someone like Alex Jones to get kicked off of Facebook, uh, Twitter, and YouTube? No. But am I going to uh, die on the hill of fighting for him when he does? No, not 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 that either. I mean, a lot of the times these guys are basically you know breaking policy on these platforms and a lot of times you, you know these policies they're breaking aren't even like you know taking you know they're saying something they don't like it's like basic policies that uh that are, are platform specific like using fake engagement to boost your stuff um, what does that mean for folks who don't get it right so there's a lot of times and this happened with a ter- i believe turning point usa on facebook is a good example basically you pay for uh people or you yourself create fake accounts or you pay people to create fake accounts and you basically get them to like and favorite and share your stuff so that the algorithms on these platforms see that, oh, look, this content is being shared by a lot of people, a lot of accounts. It must be content people like to see. And these algorithms are basically made to keep people on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter as much as possible. So they then take this popular content or content they think is popular because they're seeing it being shared so much and they then boost it in people's news feeds in hopes that more people see it, more people share it, more people like it, and it goes even more viral. So a lot of times uh, these conservative groups, and Turning Point USA is a good example, uh, get caught for doing this stuff, but you know, those, and these, these fake accounts will get banned, but the actual main account by the organization that helped organize it all, they don't get banned. And that's basically Facebook actually giving these right-wing groups, you know, an okay to do these things. So long story short, the reason I'm bringing this up is because I don't think that this has anything to do with how uh, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, et cetera, treat the left. I think, you know, the left would be deplatformed for these things regardless. Because we see that they don't want to really deplatform the big figures on the right because they're afraid of the right making a big stink out of, oh, there's anti-conservative bias by these liberal organizations. Is that why they're afraid or is it because they're making a lot of money off of them? It's a little bit of both. It's a little bit of both. There is a real fear and we've learned this from, well, you know, it, it, it go, does go back to the money though, but we've learned this from, uh, there were these Facebook leaks recently where Mark Zuckerberg basically has said, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm not, this isn't verbatim, but basically has said that, you know, we have to give more leeway for these right-wing conservative groups because that's what our audience wants to see. So we can't, you know, we can't drive away our audience, which again then goes back to the advertisers, but they do give more leeway to the right. And this is something that we've seen over and over and over again, regardless of what people think about this sort of anti-conservative bias. Yeah, the openly white supremacists get banned, but if that's your anti-conservative bias, you're also admitting that white supremacy is the conservative viewpoint. Like that's just your natural stance. I mean, Napoleon, like, you, you know, you're an independent musician and I I see so much overlap 
um, in these industries and in all all industries. But artists, this is this is this has been going on forever, right? Forever since capital got involved in in artistry in a big way. I mean, blame it on the Eagles, right? <laughs> I'm just kidding. That's the whole. <laughs> I have this fight with my family all the time. <laughs> like, <laughs> but Napoleon, like, how uh, how is it affecting you know the hip hop industry right now? Well, like like independent artists, it's not just hip hop. I think it's for music in general. Like, it ever since like the music business got consolidated, where all the, the there used to be more record labels, and now there's like four or five or something like that everything consolidates so it's universal sony and warner and then everybody else and it's tough the same way for 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 shows like like these to 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 cut into the algorithm and for for people to watch like that those biggest corporate um shows or, or people who have more money to pay for ads are which are artists who have record labels backing them are going to get m- most of the algorithms. Mm-hmm. Like for example, when you look at Spotify, there, there's a for for hip hop. One of the the biggest playlists is called Rap Caviar. It got 13 million subscribers, right? If you're put in the top 10 uh, of Rap Caviar, you'll get three million streams a day, which is about right. It's it pro- it's probably worth more than ten thousand dollars or something if you're independent, not if you're yeah. divvying up money with uh, with other things. But it just goes to show. And now they're counting streams as album sales. It's like you could just have the connection with whoever curates that list, which usually are, are you know, are, are known by the record labels to put your music on there. And then you could have your song go up on the charts. Whereas somebody like like a regular artist just putting their song out on a Spotify or a platform like that will just get it will just be lost in the whole ocean of artists and music and it's very very hard to stand out it's just like youtube like actually to tell you the truth as an independent spotify helps me more because they have algorithmic playlists that 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 show it to other people but like youtube is a lot harder for somebody like me because youtube only like seems to to favor very very big artists when their videos come out, they get recommended, they get showed to everybody. When an artist like me come out, I just put it on YouTube and I and I don't put some ad money. Even if I put some ad money on it, it's it's gonna be hard for me to break uh, like a certain level of streaming that'll get the al- algorithm to be behind me. So we're all playing like this game, this this rigged, you know? It's the same way before it used to be the radio stations where you, ha- you have to pay so much money in order to get on playlists. Now it's, it's, it's down to the streaming, it's down to YouTube and the bigger artists who are usually backed by bigger corporate corporations like Universal, they, they, they'll get more of the exposure. And that goes back full circle to the to the Lincoln Project stuff. I mean, they're working with these agencies to develop their plat just as, you know the pod save guys did um you know when they when they went for it i mean i used to work at sirius xm and it, it there really is such an entrenched business once you're out of that world like i was in that world and i didn't realize how much i was promoted um when i was playing their game right like when i didn't go outside of when i didn't support bernie basically i mean i before bernie was a, a presidential um, you know, he, candidate in 2015 at that time. But before 2015, I was I was doing rotations of shows, and then they offered me the serious deal and podcasts and books. Like all this stuff just comes to you if you are someone that they put out there. You might not even know what's going on. Like if you have an agent, then and you're actually building a company outright. Like it is, it is, it's insane. And then when you leave that world, which is something Sam talks about all the time. 
it becomes even more pronounced just how hard it is to break through and break the algorithm if you are of a certain political belief and you're advocating for that. Um, guys, I am. This is such a great panel. I, we could talk about this for hours because I love this conversation. Uh, hope to have you back on soon, Matt. You're brilliant at this. Matt, where can people check out your work? They can check it out at doomthepod.com for the podcast. Then they go to youtube.com slash Matt Binder for the videos and live stream. Awesome. And Napoleon, you got anything out right now that we can promote? Uh, I just put out an album a week and a half ago called Dragon Ball G, where I sampled the, from the anime Dragon Ball Z. So you can check it out on That's all platforms. Awesome. Very cool. All right, guys, uh, special shout outs to Kowalski from Nebraska. Thank you for the love. He says, Harvest is going well, and I'm exceeded. I've exceeded my yield goals. So have some money and thanks for the informative entertainment. Thank you so much. Rexall, oh my God, it's really you. And Matt, too. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Steve Parmy, hi, in Poland, we are demonstrating against the new abortion laws passed by the country's highest court. Is Poland's press, uh, it's is Poland present the United States future? Uh, is Poland's present the United States future? I don't have my glasses on. Hopefully through activism, we will stop this. I really hope not. Um, this Supreme Court, I mean, I don't think there is a choice but to pack the courts at this point. I just don't think. I think that Set e. Schumer is going to be forced to be put in that situation because it's not just the Supreme Court's attacks on the right to choose. It's everything else that comes that... We just didn't campaign enough around, maybe, as a message, but, you know, it's another st uh, topic. Thanks to Professor Harvey K and everyone for mixing it up in the live chat. Uh, guys, we have a special right now on Patreon. Uh, Harvey K and I talk about whether or not Bernie Sanders should be Labor Secretary. I'm just going to tell you, I am against it. You can find out what he's his perspective on it and whether or not I swayed it too. Um, but he talks about the history of the labor secretary, uh, the, the, the labor department and really what impact a Bernie Sanders as labor secretary would have versus the impact he has as a senator right now. Um, thanks to Midi Doctors for working the algorithms. Today we destroyed our record for likes and viewers. Oh my God, fantastic. Good job, guys. And big thanks to Bob the Mod for keeping the chat room honest. Uh, guys, go check out the Matriarch Summit. I'm going to plug it every day. Uh, get your tickets now. It's an amazing lineup. Oh, we just brought on Tara Hauska. She was just confirmed. I think we have another person that was just confirmed, too. I'm getting updates as I'm on the show. Uh, but really, really exciting. Corey Bush is going to be headlining. Um, we have uh, Francesca Friantini is going to be there. Barbara Smith. Uh, who else am I missing? Jane McAlevey. We may have a few more big names coming soon by the end of the day. So get your tickets now. It's going to be an incredibly thoughtful conversation and rallying cry as to why class needs to be linked to feminism and why moving forward, we always talk about the two together. Um, and really, even, I mean, if you want to bring an abortion to, into the conversation, which it should be, reproductive rights are the, the people who are at risk of losing their reproductive rights the most. Um, are people who cannot afford to go fly to Switzerland to have an abortion, okay? Or cannot go to a different state to get uh, any sort of care needed. You know, there are state. I, I, there was a very famous video of me um, on C-SPAN where I dropped an F-bomb. You guys may have seen it. And I was talking about the DNC not investing in 50 states. And one of the arguments I made was, if you live in Arizona where basically Planned Parenthood is barely existent and you have an ectopic pregnancy, you have to drive to New Mexico to have it, to, to take care of it. That is what is at risk right now. So we have to organize even around uh, reproductive rights in conjunction to class. 
and race because we know what the Republicans are doing now. They just showed all their cards with this last president. They showed their, they showed their game. They played all their cards. And we have to do the same thing in order to fight back. Uh, love you guys. You're amazing. We will see you tomorrow. What an incredible show. Tommy Sunshine, the DJ, is on. He has been on the streets relentlessly. Oh, my God. The guy, like, I don't know how many boots he's gone through, but he is always on the streets. Um, he's going to be talking about his organizing on the ground and his and, and his music, of course, um, on the show tomorrow. It'll be a great, great, great show. And then we have Jordan Zacharin and Nabila Islam to talk about what's happening in some of these key swing states, including Georgia, which Nabila's from, because who knew that was in play? And now it is. All right, guys, we will see you tomorrow, 3 p.m. Eastern, right here on the Nomi Key Show. Thanks. Thank you.